Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Palace of Glittering Delights as I continue my look through Amazing Spider-Man from the very beginning. Amazing Spider-Man issue 56, which is where we're up to, has Spider-Man and Dr. Octopus running before a Daily Bugle newspaper heading. Spidey joins Doc Ock. Interestingly, the paper is dated Saturday, October something, 1967. It's weird they edited out the day, but left the month and year. But either way, this is a rare dating of a story. This is either the 7th, 14th, 21st or 28th of that month. Disaster is the title of the story. Spidey helps Ock load the nullifier onto a van, and then Ock uses the nullifier to prevent any police from following them. Once again, the nullifying doing whatever Stan wants it to do. It overheats, though Octavius isn't worried. He figures he can fix it later. Spider-Man recognises the nullifier as a work of genius, but doesn't know how he knows that. The main problem with all amnesiac stories of this nature is they are all pretty much the same, to the point where I do wonder how they became such a well-repeated trope. All these stories do is allow the main protagonist to act out of character for a bit, whilst other characters about them try to exploit them, whilst we, the audience, wait for the inevitable moment of realisation for the hero. The best of these add new wrinkles to this old setup, and Stan, to his credit, at least tries to do that. He has Ark ask Spider-Man to remove his mask, but this makes Spider-Man suspicious. How, he wonders, can they be partners if they don't know each other? Ock realises his mistake and then tells Spider-Man they are not partners. Ock is boss! He orders Spider-Man to go to Fort Tyson to retrieve an isotope numbered 16 to fix the nullifier. Do we think that Stan is just making this shit up as he goes? Ock gives Spidey a map of how to get there and back. That thud you just heard was the hammer of foreshadowing falling to the floor. Stan adds a little interlude here, with Peter's concerned friends wondering where Peter is. Aunt May frets about his job as a photographer, and Murray Jane talks all to shit as usual. MJ clearly doesn't know that Peter is Spider-Man. It's an inconsequential appearance by the gang, although Gwen looks radiant once again. More pertinent to the plot, John Jameson is coordinating with local law enforcement to track Ock down. The most interesting thing about all this is it is the first appearance of Gwen's dad, former police chief George Stacy. Gwen calls Captain Stacy to ask if he can look at accident reports with John Doe's to see if Peter has been hurt in such a way as to not be able to tell the paramedics his name. Gwen seems to think this will make May feel better, but doesn't seem to wonder what would happen if George finds out that Peter is in fact injured or dead. George shows his observational and detective skills by wondering if it will also make Gwen feel better. Hmm. He presumably shows even better observational skills looking at the reports, given that he's never met Peter and doesn't actually know what he looks like. Spider-Man, meanwhile, steals the isotope from Fort Tyson in a dramatic and exciting action beat. Spidey drops the map Ock gave him and wonders if, subconsciously, he did it deliberately, or if the hammer of foreshadowing forced him to do it. John and his crew find the map and prepare for an armed-to-the-teeth attack on Ock's stronghold. It's lucky that Ock drew nice big circles around his location and the location of Fort Tyson, because that makes it pretty simple for John to find out where he is. 
Speaking of a Jameson, Jonah is having a minor fit over all these developments that he is not privy to. He's a little upset that he has no insider knowledge, despite it being his son covering the theft, and Peter Parker hasn't been in with a decent photo for days, which is obviously all Peter's fault. Again, it's a short and mostly irrelevant interruption from the main story, which is a shame. A bit more characterisation would have helped this entertaining but pedestrian yarn immeasurably. Back at Ox Place, a minion notices that Spider-Man doesn't have the map he left with, and they fight again. This is more of a close quarters battle, and is therefore more interesting as a result. Ock and Spider-Man need room to manoeuvre, so locking them in a room makes for a more tense and dramatic confrontation. The military then arrive, and again, we get a nice confrontation with Ock versus the army. Spider-Man's uncertainty is capitalised on by John, who trusts Spider-Man, and has that trust repaid when Spider-Man can't bring himself to attack the Colonel. The ending, though, is note-perfect. After retrieving the nullifier and arresting Ock, John tries to get Spider-Man to come in with them. Spider-Man resists and runs, making things ultimately worse for himself, in true Spider-Man fashion. When he's alone, Spidey takes off his mask, only for his reflection to mean nothing to him. He stands alone, his mask in hand, wondering who he is and what will happen now. Overall, this issue isn't that great. There's a lot of lacklustre writing that is just a result of not paying attention. Characters know things before they should. Newspaper articles are all aware of Spidey and Ox team up before this is common knowledge. And Ox minion points out the lack of a map, despite not being there when Ox gave the map to Spider-Man. John Jameson says things like, Spider-Man looks bewildered when he's looking at a man in a mask and therefore can't tell what he looks like. His trust of Spidey later is an effective story beat, though, and the downbeat ending makes up for any other shortcomings. For this story, at least, there are no pat answers, no easy way out for Spider-Man. He's a wanted man. He has no idea who he is or where he's from, and no idea how to proceed. This is a proper Spider-Man dilemma, and the horror of not knowing anything about yourself comes home in this powerful and provocative conclusion. The cover to issue 57 is yet another Ramita classic. I know, I know, you're getting bored of hearing me say that now, but every single one of these covers is brilliant. What do you want me to do? Kazar, the savage, Marvel's version of Tarzan, basically, leaps from a cornice, fists clenched towards Spider-Man, whose tiptoes are clinging to a building. Kazar's pet saber-toothed tiger, Zabu, also leaps at Spider-Man from somewhere. I do wonder how Zabu will fur leaping from this great height. Is he going to make a big Zabu-shaped splat on the floor when he lands, or can he too cling to walls? The Coming of Kazar is not yet another superhero porn film, but rather the title of this issue. Spider-Man is still without his memory and feeling a tad peckish. He steals a sandwich from a posh do happening on a balcony, as the credits inform us that Don Heck finished the art alongside Inca Mickey DeMio. One of the guests at the party sees the sandwich fly off and attributes it to having had a little bit too much punch. An old gag, but still a satisfying one. Momentarily sated, but still tired, Spider-Man seeks shelter from the rain in the Grand Central Station rafters, where he dozes off for a fitful night's slumber. Elsewhere, Aunt May has another attack over Peter being missing. Far more interesting than this is the subcommittee hearing where John Jameson must answer for his not apprehending Spider-Man in the last issue. 
It confirms a personal bias that Spider-Man has saved his life on numerous occasions and he could not bring himself to believe he was really a bad guy and John is prepared to accept any punishment they deem fit. Fortunately, his CEO is more reasonable than the guy asking for John's stripes and he points out that John's actual mission to retrieve the nullifier was an unqualified success. Captain Stacy also defends John, although what actual authority Stacy has as a special advisor isn't made terribly clear. Jonah Jameson is waiting outside. He's banging on about Spider-Man being a murderer, to which Stacy points out that there isn't actually any proof of that. Jonah has the best line of the issue. Who needs proof? Proving one thing. Jonah's well ahead of his time. He storms off, claiming there is someone arriving in the city who will make mincemeat of the costume creep. Oh, Jonah, will you never learn? And who is this mysterious somebody arriving in the city to make mincemeat of our masked friend? Well, it's Lord Kevin Plunder, a.k.a. Kazar. He's here to look into matters of his estate, having just found out that he's a nobleman, and any resemblance to Tarzan is intentional, I'm sure. I'm curious as to why these affairs are being handled in New York, given that it was implied over in Daredevil that Kazar was a British national, but, you know, if Stan doesn't care about that stuff, I can kind of gloss over it as well. Rather hilariously, Kazar arrives in New York with his pet saber-toothed tiger Zabu, who not only strides through the assembled throngs of newspaper reporters without a single cur, but also rides in a taxi, much to the obvious displeasure of the cab driver. At his swanky hotel... Kazar is accosted by Jonah Jameson, who offers Kazar $10,000 to apprehend Spider-Man, who Jonah paints as a dangerous menace to society. Kazar cares not for the money, and Jameson bothers him, and well he should. This isn't the first time Jonah has offered money or funded a project to get at Spider-Man, something that I'm pretty sure can be construed as illegal. Also, Jonah's been down this route before with Craven, and that didn't turn out terribly well for him. Speaking of not quite illegal, but a little bit suspect, a guilty Harry Osborne searches Peter's room for a clue to his whereabouts. He's not really out to do anything nasty. He just feels a bit bad he's been cold-shouldering his friend. Harry finds a spider tracer on the floor and leaps to the conclusion that Spider-Man has kidnapped Pete. This isn't really that much of a stretch. Jonah and the Bugle have whipped the public up into such a lather over Spider-Man, it seems everybody thinks he's up to no good. Within seconds, because that's how news works in the Marvel Universe, it's all over the front page that Peter Parker has been snatched by that infernal wall crawler. Spidey himself hears of it on a transistor radio, and also hears that US Air Force Colonel John Jameson is his only defender. Spider-Man elects to find John to see if he can help. Spider-Man is able to locate John, somehow, but he and George Stacy just make it worse. Especially when Gwen bursts in and accuses Spidey of having it away with Peter. Gwen's presence makes all of Spider-Man's blood run to places other than his brain, and he has to leave lest an unsightly bulge appear in his tights. Spider-Man continues his search for answers. His next stop is the Bugle, where, of all the windows he could have gone through, he chooses Jonah's. Jonah immediately spots an opportunity, and it's hard not to compare the similarities here between his and Dr. Octopus' exploitation of the situation versus George Stacy and John Jameson's attempts to help Spider-Man. People like to talk about how Peter Parker was only one step removed from being a supervillain, 
a take I really don't agree with, but Jonah is almost there as well. In fact, I'd argue Jonah has crossed that line on more than one occasion. Jonah manages to use his silver-tongued devilry to convince Spider-Man to remove his mask, when suddenly Kazar smashes through the window. Kazar has been tracking Spidey across town, and now let battle commence. It's a fast-paced and fun fight, as it always is with Ramita, but with some illogicalities. Spider-Man runs out of web fluid and can't remember how to change the cartridges, yet he remembers how to use them and that it's called web fluid. Last issue, he also had no trouble recognising the intricate workings of the nullifier, but here he doesn't know how to slot tab A into slot B. This is another issue with amnesia tales. How much does your protagonist remember? They always seem to remember how to talk, for instance. Kazar lures Spider-Man to Central Park, where he's more in his element. However, one-on-one, Kazar is no match for Spider-Man, and our hero lays the smackdown on the Urzat Tarzan. Kazar is only saved from a thrashing by Zabu, who tackles Spidey and sends both of them into the lake, which rather oddly seems to be a whirlpool. Are they common in New York, particularly in Central Park, whirlpools? I would have thought I'd have heard about it. Maybe it would have been mentioned on an episode of Friends or something. Anyway, Spider-Man doesn't resurface and so Kazar pulls him out of the lake and pronounces Spider-Man's limp form deceased. You must be here next issue, runs the copy. In contrast to issue 56, issue 57 is another fun and underrated issue. Stan seems to be setting Peter up some major problems when he gets his memory back. If he gets his memory back, that is. Hell, if he's even still alive. Kudos to Stan for taking this tired old plot and doing something, if not revolutionary, then at least interesting and entertaining with it. The story continues into issue 58. The cover, more eye-catching goodness from Mr. Ramita, is J. Jonah Jameson in yet another Spider Slayer. To kill a Spider-Man is the title. In between issues, Kazar has realised that Spider-Man still lives, which is one of the biggest cheats in cliffhangers ever. Kazar decides to talk to Spidey rather than fight some more, which is made easier by the fact that Spider-Man has his memory back. Yes, the shock of hitting the water apparently brought Peter's memories flooding back to him. Now, I'm no medical professional, but this seems to be one step removed from hitting him over the head with a baseball bat. Still, it appears to have worked, so who can argue with success? Well, Jonah can or argue with a lack of success, anyway. In this case, it's Dr. Spencer Smythe who calls Jonah out of the blue to tell him he has a new Spider Slayer ready to go. Speaking of going, John Jameson is shipping out, his new orders taking him overseas. John talks with George Stacy about Spider-Man and Jonah's irrational hatred of him, which leads them to discuss keeping up with each other. I don't recall if they do, which is a shame. This was a pretty neat partnership. John asks about Gwen, who is visiting May, who is still worried about Peter. Gwen isn't as gorgeous under Don Heck's pencils, but what is weird is May, Harry and Doc Bromwell are all completely on model and look like Ramita redrew them. It's weird that he didn't touch up Gwen's face as well. Stan then decides to wrap up the whole Kazar plot quite quickly and without a lot of fanfare. He has Zabu arrive, terrifying the citizens, and Kazar swoops in to prevent Zabu being shot. He takes his pet and leaves. That's pretty much it for the Kazar story. I don't know if Stan or John got bored of it, or if they didn't really know where to take it that wasn't a rehash of the craven, most dangerous game plot. Kazar doesn't even go to Jonah to tell him the contract is off. Still, our hero now knows that there's trouble afoot, 
and heads off to try and piece his life back together. That life is about to get even more complicated. Jonah has, rather reluctantly, took a meeting with Smythe, only to get all excited by the capabilities of this new Spider Slayer. He's a little taken aback by Smythe's apparent desire to kill Spider-Man, but Smythe assures him that that was a simple turn of phrase and he meant nothing by it. Jonah shrugs it off and is ecstatic to get back to work. I've always found it interesting that each subsequent Spider Slayer was actually more ineffective than the last one. If we recall the first appearance, Smythe actually beat Spider-Man, but he doesn't know that. Perhaps had Smythe known that, he would never have gone down the path that he did. Anyway, John pops by the bugle to see his father, and Ned and Betty are still banging on about that wedding that won't happen for a decade or so. Jonah isn't there, but we learn that Robbie is also a veteran, presumably of World War II. Again, I don't recall if this was ever used for a storyline anywhere, which seems like a missed opportunity. Spider-Man, meanwhile, is struggling to get across town without his webbing, because for some reasons, he's still feeling woozy. When did this start? Is this a natural side effect of amnesia? Spidey tries to hitch a lift on a bus, but this being New York, something in a nearby building grasses him up, and he's forced to hit the bricks again. Jonah and Smythe are on Spider-Man's trail, though, and Jonah's glee is a joy to behold. They locate our hero just as he's found his way home and about to crash out for the night. After all, he hasn't had a decent sleep in days. A nice touch, I thought. Another nice touch, Jonah doesn't recognise this as Peter's apartment. And why would he? I have no idea where the people I work with live. Rather confusingly, Jonah and Smythe are suddenly back at the bugle, despite the last panel stating they were following the spider slayer in Smythe's car. Perhaps Stan took a toilet break between these two pages and forgot where he was up to in the script. Smythe starts seriously crossing the line here, becoming sweaty and agitated. Whereas last time we saw him, he was a scientist who'd created something. Here he's on his way to becoming the obsessed lunatic of future stories, a path that will ultimately lead to his death. Spider-Man thinks they are both at Smythe's lab, which is located at Smythe's house. He knows this because he visited there as Peter Parker back in issue 28. He doesn't yet know Smythe's first name, but as he's the only Smythe in the phone boot with Scientist by his name, Spidey figures he must be the guy. Elsewhere, Smythe is tired of Jonah's non-lethal activities and snatched control of the Slayer away from Jonah, yelling at him for being a pious hypocrite. Smythe starts getting overconfident at the prospect of killing Spidey, so he's a tad surprised when the Spider Slayer backfires and explodes. Spidey explains that he figured that too many spider impulses may cause the robot to get trapped in a feedback loop. And where was the best place to locate a lot of spiders? Smythe's lab. Again, Peter saw all these spiders when he visited the lab back in issue 28. So not only is this a nice callback, it also wraps the story up with a nice continuity reference. Jonah isn't impressed, pointing out that if they'd only planned to capture him, they'd have won. I have no idea where Jonah gets his deluded impressions from. It seems to me Spider-Man was in no real danger from this Spider-Slayer, and the only real issue was Spider-Man's lethargy at being tired. Unlike the first robot, this had more impressive weaponry, but was nowhere near the threat level of the original. All that's left is to bring this puppy home. Peter heads for home, his tiredness all but forgotten. He can't get any joy from May on the telling bone, and so he decides to walk over to her house and pay her a visit. On the way, he bumps into Kazar and Zabu, out for an evening stroll. Kazar, kinda, sorta recognising Peter, but not really, and the two go their separate ways.
All told, this was a pretty good wrap-up to the Amnesia Ock storyline, even if the letterer on this final page thinks that Doc Ock is a riverside place where boats park up. The art by Don Heck is not as polished as Ramita's, leading to some off-model characters, particularly Peter and Gwen, but overall it's fine. Story-wise, this is not Stan's strongest outing, although it's far from bad. It just feels a little by the numbers, wrapping up some elements a little too quickly, and others feeling tacked on. Somebody somewhere must have realised that, unlike when Craven fights Spider-Man, there's no real gain to Kazar fighting him, as they are both good guys. Just dropping him from the story seems off, though. If the Spider-Slayer had to be a part of the story, then it would have been better to have Kazar see Jonah's face on the Spider-Slayer, and then help Spider-Man out in the final battle. Alas, this was not to be, and Jonah and Smither played largely for laughs. The Spider Slayer is not as threatening here as it was in its first appearance, where, as I've already mentioned, it actually won its final battle with Spider-Man. Issue 59 has... Yes, yes, I know, another magnificent cover by John Romita. I should just record this bit and then just drop it in instead of saying it over and over and over again. On the cover, Spider-Man fights two goons behind a curtain. This is on stage, and behind the curtain we see Murray Jane in a shimmering silver dress and calf-high go-go boots dancing up a storm for the punters, none of whom are aware of what is happening behind the scenes. The brand of the brainwasher is by Stanley and Johnny Romita, although Don Heck and Mickey DeMio are credited as well, implying Romita only did the plot and breakdowns. As such, the interior art is already a step down from the stunning cover. Spider-Man is accosted by the police on his way to see May, still in the hospital following the events of the last few issues. Spider-Man disarms the cops without hurting anyone, but he then webs them up for no reason whatsoever. He's whipped the pistols away, knocked out the spotlight so they can't be seen, getting away was no real problem, but he chooses to web up all these policemen. See Spidey, this is why you have such a shitty reputation. Spider-Man makes his way to the hospital, and instead of changing his clothes and going into the building as Peter Parker, entering through the main doorway, asking the nice receptionist where May is, and taking the lift like any normal person, Peter enters as Spider-Man, nicks the patient director, steals inside and up the lift shaft, narrowly avoids being seen changing by a janitor, and then goes to May's room. Sure, it's visually more interesting, but it doesn't make a lick of sense. The visit does make May feel better, though, and the scene between the two of them is really sweet. There's a minor goof here. May communicates with the orderly who asks who the hell Peter is and how he got in here without him knowing via telepathy. She has a thought bubble rather than a speech balloon, but hey, maybe May is a latent telepath. After all, if it's in the comics, it's canon. Nevertheless, this has all been a bit of a wake-up call for Peter. He suddenly realises he's been missing for quite a bit and has, in fact, been reported as such to the police. He heads to the local station house to report in, where the nice desk clerk involved in that Spider-Man was reported to have captured Peter. Peter says, um, yes, yes, that's exactly what happened, without thinking this through, and suddenly is in an interrogation room, being bombarded with questions about his alter ego. Fortunately, George Stacy arrives. George meets his daughter's boyfriend for the first time in a police interrogation room. Sure, that'll go down well with the man whose daughter he's dating. George provides a clue that blows this whole case wide open, see? 
He tells Peter Spider-Man had amnesia, and from that, Peter is able to spin a web of intrigue that isn't that far from the truth. The police buy it, largely, I suspect, because they have more important things to do, and Peter is released. As he goes, some loudmouth conveniently drops us some information about a bunch of dangerous mobsters being released on bail. I wonder if that will come into play as the story progresses. George Stacy wants a chat with Peter, as you would if you just met your daughter's boyfriend for the first time in a police interrogation room. No, I'm not letting this go. The Stacy home is apparently four speech balloons away from the police precinct, so it's not that far of a walk. George wants to tell Peter all about his hobby, which is Spider-Man. As a former police chief, George has extensive access to news clips of Spider-Man, and having viewed them all, George is deduced that Spidey is quite youthful and highly intelligent. Peter is all, what's this got to do with me? And George bangs on about Spider-Man actually being a decent sort. Stan is cleverly setting up future events here, with George figuring out Peter is Spider-Man, and this is a cute way of getting that subplot boiling. George isn't stupid, and although Peter's story may have washed with some flatfoots who want him out of the her, it's pretty smelly to Mr. Stacy. Before Peter can bluster his way out of this one, Gwen arrives, looking resplendent in a jade skirt and coat, and a lighter shade of jade for her shirt. Never let it be said that Gwen Stacy does not know how to accessorise. She plants a smacker on Peter right in front of her dad, but Peter is more embarrassed than he is, and George realises that he's no competition for the coffee bean and Harry Osborne. Well, he may be more interested than Harry. Stan skips the opportunity to give Gwen and Peter some alone time, and we pick up at the coffee bean, where Harry is also glad to see Peter, so much so that he forgets all about his anger over him treating the place like a hotel. What is Harry Peter's mum? Peter asks about Murray Jane, and we are told that she has a job at the Gloom Room A-Go-Go. Did places really have names like that in the 60s? Really? The Gloom Room A-Go-Go? What the hell happens in a gloom room? Where is it going? None of these questions seem to matter to Peter and co, and they vow to go and see Murray Jane at work later that day. Notice that Stan has dropped in dialogue about Murray Jane having a new job just after he dropped the bombshell that some mobsters have been released on bail. Well, true believer, none of this is by mistake. Stan is subtly dropping clues as to where this plot is going. And wouldn't you know it, on the very next page, we learn the mobsters are connected to the gloom rumor go-go. Who'd have thunk it? Not me, that's for sure. The mobsters say MJ was employed due to her wit and intellect. <laughs> nah, I'm just fucking with you. Murray J was employed because with a sex pot like that running around and dancing up a storm, nobody will be paying attention to what's really going on. And what is that? I hear you ask. Well, Murray Jane, in between shaking her bootay, will be taking pictures of all the patrons because, and I quote, no one can resist a chance to have a free photo of themselves. Wow, Stan was seriously ahead of his time here. When I were a lad and this were all fields, I hated getting my photo taken, and so did pretty much everyone else I knew. However, the rise of the selfie has created a nation of narcissists, so this plan may not be as stupid as it seems. Of course, this was before I learned the second part of the plan. The photos plant a hypnotic suggestion in the patron through the flash, and this makes them come back the next night. Then the brainwasher for he is our villain du jour, will start messing around with their heads. On the second visit, 
the second visit. Not the first. Oh, no, no, that would be too obvious, I grant you. No, the second visit. Because that makes perfect sense. The plan then gets even better. They intend on luring all of the city's top officials to the gloom rumor go-go to brainwash them to do their bidding. Now, I don't know about you, but the gloom rumor go-go sounds exactly like the kind of place the city's top brass, well-to-do and massively influential people would hang out rather than a stupidly named hangout for college kids. The only older men who are there are picking up some cheap young bits of fluff. Now, despite my misgivings about this, they must hang out here, as the brainwasher has already conned one dupe, the assistant district attorney, into releasing some of the brainwasher's chums. Stan ties this all together quite nicely, despite the batshit crazy nature of the plot, and there are three villains here who sadly are all interchangeable. Later on, Spider-Man is taking a nice little web swing in lieu of a cold shower because Gwen has stirred the parts other beers don't reach. He happens across a bank robbery where Don Heck shows he doesn't really have Spider-Man's shtick down yet. In one panel, Spider-Man fires his web shooters with one finger and in another, he fires them without touching his palm at all. This is not one of the more dynamic action beats either. I don't really know a lot about Don Heck, other than he drew a lot of the early Iron Man strips, but this shows the difficulty in drawing Spider-Man. Generic action sequences don't work for this character, and this is very much a generic action sequence. Spider-Man's movements and actions, his body language and his posture are all different to the more standard heroes like Captain America or Batman. Spider-Man isn't a muscle-bound fighter per se, he's a lot lither and more flexible, and his movements are more fluid and erratic. There is nothing about this sequence that says it's a Spider-Man sequence. It could be anyone, really. Mary Jane is over at the Gloom Room a go-go rehearsing for the following night. I'm a tad confused by the timeline here. The implication is that tomorrow is opening night, hence the invitations to all the city's bigwigs. However, they've already brainwashed the DA. So when did they do that? Was the club already open, but in an unofficial capacity? If so, who did the dancing? Or did they not have the dancing, and that's led to this new plan involving Murray Jane? It's all a tad convoluted. And also, who is the main villain here? As I've mentioned, there are three villains here, all of whom at this point are interchangeable. The gangster who arranges all this, is he the main villain? Is he the brainwasher? Or is the mad scientist guy who is actually doing the brainwashing the brainwasher? Or is it just the random mobster guy we saw earlier on? Mary Jane, however, is just very happy to have the gig and happy to take the snaps. And she's not really thinking there's an issue here. And, you know, why should she? She's got a job. She's been paid to do that job. She's going to do that job. Through the magic of comics panels, we time hop over to the next night. Gwen, Peter and Harry all have front row seats, Harry having pulled some strings, presumably due to his dad's connections. Many other city officials are present, including George Stacy, but not, weirdly, Norman Osborn. Gwen and Peter flirt outrageously, whilst George, always on duty, wonders who owns this establishment. It seems very odd to me that New York City's most prominent citizens would accept an invitation to a place where they have no idea who the owner is. 
As with all these stories, let's take a break and look at the character dynamics. Harry seems to be the gooseberry tonight. He's no designs on Gwen anymore, probably because she and Peter are making no bones about their attraction to each other at this point. Mary Jane is, as ever, the most interesting, largely because of what she doesn't say. As she dances, she's in her element. Clearly at home on the dance floor, she struts her stuff to almost unanimous acclaim, basking in the adulation and the attention. Obviously, she's been doing this kind of thing for many years, perhaps studying dance since she was very young. However, Mary Jane's thoughts betray her. Eat your heart out, Gwendolyn. This time, little Mary Jane is in the spotlight, she thinks. This is fascinating. Why does MJ care so much about what Gwen thinks? Why does she crave approval at the expense of Gwen? Is it purely down to her and Peter? Despite the clearly sexually charged Mary Jane shimmying across the stage to the approval of both the men and the women, Peter pays her no never mind. He only has eyes for Gwen. Why does Mary Jane view Gwen as such a threat? Is it because Gwen is beautiful but also intelligent? By that I mean Gwen is studying a proper subject, science, whereas MJ is in the arts. Why would Mary Jane have such a low opinion of herself? The arts are hard work. All of these questions will be answered, but much later down the line, when we start to discover a lot more about Mary Jane's background and childhood. For now, though, they make the Gwen-Murray Jane dynamic fascinating to discuss. Gwen, being Gwen, is nothing but complimentary to Murray Jane, and her stance speak is simply hysterical. Your footwork was from Fabsville, Twinkle Toes. Murray Jane takes the compliment well, and then sets about taking photos. Peter is the only one that thinks this is odd that she's only snapping prominent people, but that doesn't seem that strange to me. Why would you take photos of nobodies if you want to, you know, make a statement that your club is worthy in people are at? The Flash makes people dizzy, and they all wander off to the brainwasher's lure, including Captain Stacy. Stacy, however, is made of sterner stuff, and manages to fight the control, and is detained by some goons because of it. Gwen fears her father has been missing for too long, and Peter volunteers to go and look for him, which he decides to do as Spider-Man. Because, you know, comics. Peter does admit, once again, that it's the adrenaline rush of being Spider-Man that compels him, and much more could be explored with this. Nevertheless, Peter's instincts turn out to be correct, and he runs across many, many gun-wielding goons, whom he tackles in his own inimitable fashion. Sadly, Murray Jane intervenes, having heard the ruckus, and she quickly becomes a hostage. Spider-Man rescues her with the old web-up-the-gun-barrel manoeuvre, and Murray Jane takes all this remarkably well. She seems to be thrilled by the action, and even asks Spider-Man if he has any brothers, which either implies that she doesn't dig on Spider-Man herself, or is up for a Spidey sandwich. Of course, why would she ask this if she knows who Spider-Man is? I'll let you ponder that, lovely listener. Spider-Man continues on his quest to find Captain Stacy, which he does, but he also finds the real villain of the piece, the Kingpin. The issue ends with the Kingpin's meaty fists encircling Spider-Man's wrists. The revelation that the brainwasher is the Kingpin is suitably dramatic, albeit signposted early in the issue, but it muddies the waters further. If the Kingpin is behind all this, who was the guy giving orders earlier on? Was that mobster guy just following the Kingpin's orders? And again, surely the actual brainwasher is the man, you know, doing the actual brainwashing. Whereas the Kingpin isn't actually doing that shit. That's down to some other guy. Still, the issue is hugely entertaining. 
Sure, the wrap-up of Peter's amnesia is a bit of a letdown, but the greater focus on Peter and Gwen and the rest of the supporting cast is appreciated. Don Heck's art is not as dynamic as Ramita's, and some of his faces are off-model, whereas others, like Mae Parker, are clearly being redrawn by Ramita. Issue 60's cover has the Kingpin swinging Spider-Man around by his ankles like he's a small child in a playground. I'm not even going to bother telling you it's another Ramita gem. Oh, bitter victory is by the same team as issue 59 and opens with the Kingpin immediately lunging after Spider-Man. Captain Stacy is in the brainwashing machine with the Doctor hovering over him and we're off. Spidey manages to avoid the many blows and even has time to wonder how the Kingpin, a larger man, can move so fast take a drink. This leads to the Kingpin hurling Spider-Man into the power supply, which is a massive mistake. The Kingpin is forced to attend to the sparks and smoke, leaving Spider-Man the opportunity to leg it. Yes, leg it. Spider-Man doesn't even try to rescue Captain Stacy, which even in his weakened state, I think he would have. He just runs. I wasn't too sure about this, but if anyone knows Spider-Man, it's Stan. Besides, had Spider-Man rescued Captain Stacy, the Kingpin and the funny Doctor Man wouldn't have managed to recalibrate the system and brainwash him. So, you know, the story would have just ended here. The Kingpin makes Stacy obey. Only him. Again, Stan doesn't really use a lot of exposition to bring the readers up to speed. Rather, as he barrels along, he keeps us all aware of where all the characters are and how they got there. One such scene is outside in the club, where Mary Jane tries to tell Gwen and Harry about her ordeal, but Captain Stacy shows up and says, it's all okay, and everyone believes him, because he's a vuncular Captain Stacy, and why would you not? Spider-Man, meanwhile, is seen double due to being caught in the explosion of the brainwashing machine. He decides that, rather than change back to Peter Parker, and return to the club where he can tell everyone what he saw, and what happened to him, he'll just bugger off home. He ditches Gwen, and goes home. Why did she ever speak to him again? Now, Peter seems to realise this and spends his time at home agonising about what he's done. Now, Stan was normally very good at milking Peter's anguish for melodrama, but this is a bit much. Had Peter returned to the club, the logical thing to do, he'd have seen Stacy return and been suspicious. He could then have bided his time, played this off as being ill, not alerted Gwen and Co to anything odd, should he decide not to, and then keep his eye on Captain Stacy, and this story could have played out a little bit better, or certainly more organically. Here, Peter is upset over stuff he doesn't know. Had he stayed in the club, he'd know Captain Stacy was free. He'd know that Stacy was being manipulated because he's already aware of the brainwashing machine. And the drama could have come from Peter being at odds with him as he tries to help him whilst not screwing up his relationship with Gwen. This could still have led to the next scene where Peter, at the Stacy homestead, realises that Captain Stacy has changed. Peter confronts Stacy, who lunges at Peter, but Peter avoids a caning with his superior spider strength, but inadvertently knocks Stacy off his feet. This is, typically, when Gwen walks in. Now this is all great stuff. When Gwen kicks Peter out, the depth of feeling is tangible. Peter's heartbreak is real, man. This is why we were so addicted to this stuff. We've all done things that were stupid. Now, Granted, we're not superheroes, but we've said stupid things or not said things that we should have said, which has led to bad feeling. And when the strip did this kind of thing, it was unsurpassable. None of the other Marvel books were as good at the soap opera as Spider-Man. On a continuity note, Gwen specifically gives her age here as 18. 
Also of note, Stan's different characterization of Captain Stacy when he's under the influence. Ramita and Heck draw his face as more scowly, and Stan removes any trace of the pleasant man we've grown to know from the dialogue. Stacy calls the Kingpin to warn him that Peter knows what's occurring. The Kingpin orders Peter to be silenced. Interestingly, the Kingpin's men are a bit shocked by this. They're happy to lean on Peter a bit, but they're not really comfortable killing him. To this end, they hit his apartment, but Peter is out visiting Aunt May. The goons give poor Harry the shock of his life, though. When Peter gets home, Harry refuses to leave, stating that Peter may need his help. Harry's development is also interesting. Away from the influence of Flash Thompson, Harry is quite loyal and steadfast, and a good man to have in your corner. He doesn't know what trouble Peter is in, but he's willing to risk his neck to help out. Harry is clearly one of those people who is heavily influenced by the people around him. And when it's Flash, that's to the negative. But when it's Peter... It's a more positive influence. Despite still suffering from blurry vision, Spider-Man makes the scene. He spots Captain Stacy getting in a car with the men he fought last night and follows them to police HQ. Together, Stacy and the Hoods, which sounds like a pop band, raid the police files and Spider-Man, after setting up his camera, tries to stop them. Stacy puts paid to this, whacking Spider-Man over the head with his cane. They leave vowing to frame Spider-Man for the break-in, but Spider-Man has pictures that prove his innocence whilst also proving Captain Stacy's guilt. What a wonderful Spider-Man-esque dilemma. Spider-Man can prove his innocence, but to do so, he needs to show evidence of his girlfriend's dad being a crook, something that could ruin his reputation as well as really upsetting Gwen. Peter decides he has to sell the photos, as people are being hurt, and because the news is instant in the Marvel Universe, a special edition arrives on Gwen's store. A special edition arrives on Gwen's doorstep just in time for the cliffhanging ending. What an issue! Problem upon problem is piled upon poor Peter's head, and whatever he does, nothing works out for him. Stan milks this for all it's worth, and the character melodrama is so engrossing you kind of forget that the Kingpin's plan is absolute bollocks. Putting a brainwashing machine in a teenage nightclub to attract big deal city officials is really dumb, but that no one at Police HQ would stop Stacy when he shows up with a couple of goons who could not look more guilty if they had I'm a crook, ask me how, tattooed on their foreheads, just beggars belief. But the character stuff, the soap opera of it all, is absolutely riveting. Issue 61 wraps up this show and it features, as ever, a glorious John Romita cover, yeah, yeah, yeah. Captain Stacy and Gwen are tied up back to back and both gagged as a large cement block snaps from its ropes and prepares to crush them to death. Spider-Man swings in to try and save the day. What a tangled web we weave is the title. And you have to wonder how such an obvious and brilliant title hadn't been used before. The splash page is textbook. A forlorn Peter Parker trudges through the uncurring streets, wondering if the Stacys can ever forgive him. Behind him, trapped in a symbolic web, are, said Stacy's Mary Jane, Harry and Aunt May. Peter's dilemma seems quite contrived in the cold light of day, though. He's fretting that Gwen will forever condemn him for selling the pictures, as he feels the conspiracy needs closing down. But he also fears he can't tell Gwen how he found out that George is under the Kingpin's thrall. This all seems like it could be sorted out with Gwen if Peter and she just sat down and talked. 
MJ saw the crime at the club. Peter took photos of the crime. Peter only real has to tell her a version of the truth. That, as he investigated further what MJ said, he found out George was being used by the kingpin, and this would have all been sorted out. Especially as the brainwashing seems to be whirring off, and George starts to partially remember things. Still, George and Gwen wouldn't be alone to wander off into danger if this had happened, so I guess it's Peter's turn to hold the idiot ball. Peter swings over to the Stacys, fretting about missing classes. Oddly, Gwen doesn't seem to be concerned by this at all. He sees some crims busting into the Stacy home, and a routine fight scene follows. Spider-Man learns nothing from the crims, as they seem to pass out before they can speak. Spidey puts this down to the brainwashing, but I suspect it's more to do with the blows to the head they've just received. Elsewhere, Harry bumps into Murray Jane, and he brings her up to speed on current events. Murray Jane Watson, best friend to Gwen Stacy, and the one, as far as Peter Parker is concerned, couldn't give a shit about Gwen, Peter, and Captain Stacy being in trouble. She's turning a her out about the fact that the gloom rumour Gogo has gone belly up before she could be paid. But about her friends, couldn't give a toss. Oh well, we all have our priorities, I guess. Our plot lines then collide with the force of two mighty boulders careening down a mountain. Harry goes to visit his father, Norman Osborn, who's having horrible flashbacks involving the day he apparently helped bring about the end of the Green Goblin, but the details elude him. Osborne is having a stressful day. He's having to give a bollocking to a man named Winkler who has authorised some expensive equipment without clearing it with Norman. But horror of horrors, Winkler is the brainwasher. Or the Kingpin is the brainwasher. I'm not sure anymore. But either way, the Kingpin and his men are holed up in Osborne's factory. Rather conveniently, Winkler has a device that can home in on anybody who has been brainwashed. How this isolates a particular person isn't something Stan's terribly bothered about, but the Kingpin orders his goons use this tracking system to locate George Stacy and bring him here so Spider-Man can be lured to his death. He also orders Peter Parker killed for taking the photograph that caused this mess, which seems a little bit too much kill to me. It's not like Peter's picture showed anything that incriminates the Kingpin in any way. Nevertheless, being good little goons, the Crims leave to do their master's bidding. They locate the Stacys about to do a runner. That would sure prove your innocence, Captain Stacy. Because this was the 60s, armed men can walk into a busy airport and just point their guns at people and force them to leave and no one bats an eyelid. Spider-Man, meanwhile, is coming up dry. Sure, he's cooked up a little gas mask to prevent the Kingpin's typing from causing him to cough up a lung again, but he's having no luck at all finding the Stacys. Fortunately, at the Gloom Room of Go-Go, he conveniently finds a piece of metal machinery embedded in the ceiling that just happens to have Osborne Labs written on it. This was a real stroke of luck, because wouldn't you know it, that's exactly where the Stacys are right now. It's all coming to a head like a burst boil. Just as the brainwasher, be that Winkler or the Kingpin, who can tell, is about to strike, Spider-Man comes crashing in. According to the Kingpin, this is right on schedule, which baffles me. The Kingpin is hiding out at Osborne's factory because it's the last place anyone would look for him. But he apparently was not only expecting Spider-Man, but was anticipating his arrival. So how was Spidey supposed to find you if you were in the last place anyone would expect? Unless the finding of the conveniently labelled machinery wasn't an accident.
Oh, you're a clever one, Mr. Kingpin. There's a brief fight between Spider-Man and the Kingpin where Spidey's gas mask provides enough of a surprise for Spider-Man to knock the Kingpin down. However, Winkler, seeing this change in his fortunes, points a gun at the Stacys. Norman Osborn shows up, wondering what the hell all this commotion is in his factory, and he leaps at Winkler to save the Stacys, which results in a stray gunshot hitting the brainwashing machine, which explodes. It's a very localised explosion, killing only Winkler, but it dislodges the vat of brain juice which plummets towards the Stacys. Spidey manages to save them, but the Kingpin escapes. Apparently, Norman's story can exonerate Captain Stacy to the police, who have just arrived. Gwen tells the police Spider-Man and Norman saved them, and Spider-Man leaves. Still upset that Gwen may now be a Spider-Fan, but that she still hates Peter. This is not a great issue, but as with all comics of this era, it has great moments. The action scenes, whilst lacking a certain dynamism, are still exciting and fluid, and the angst is present and correct. The plot is contrived as hell. How exactly does Norman exonerate George? He saw him tied up, sure, but they have no proof that he was acting under the influence. The brainwashing machine blew up, so that evidence can't be used. Also, the brainwasher Winkler's death is mighty convenient. Keeping him alive and having him testify that George was under his spell for a lesser sentence would have been a more effective wrap-up to this story. As it is, the cops give Stacy a free pass because he's one of their own. Norman being involved is a nice reminder that he's still around and sets up future events. As for what those future events are, lovely listener, well, you'll have to wait to hear about those. Because we'll close this up here, as this issue was the end of Marvel Masterwork Amazing Spider-Man Volume 7 for those keeping score. As ever, we'll get back to this run when the mood strikes me, but I hope you all enjoyed this further look into the life of the ever-amazing Spider-Man. In 1939, Bob Kane and Bill Finger created a shadowy crime fighter steeped in the pulps and crime dramas of the time. That character was Batman. Over the next 80 years, Batman not only became one of the most popular comic book characters of all time, but also became a television and movie phenomenon, appearing in both live-action and animated projects. And then there are the plethora of video games, trading cards, action figures, and statues that have been made of him and his cast of characters. Because of this, Mike and I want to spend the next year celebrating his 80th birthday. And we're calling that celebration... The Overlooked Dark Knight Celebration of Batman's 80th Birthday. Yes. But really? Really? That That's the best name that you could come up with. You've written panels, dude, and that's the best thing you could come up with. It's accurate. Yeah, but, you know, you and I have been podcasting a long time now. That was the placeholder name. We can do better than that. Okay, what's your idea? Well, what did we call it in the first episode of this series that we've already recorded? I I really have no idea. It's a miracle that I remember what books we talked about. Well, that's fair, because I don't remember that either. Anyway, Andy and I are going to be spending May 2019 to May 2020 talking about Batman stories from all eras that we feel are either overlooked or too awesome not to talk about. We're even going to have special episodes dedicated to things like the 1989 Batman film and what issues of Detective Comics we would include in a big hardcover collection. Episodes will drop twice a month. 
You sure about that? To the best of my ability, episodes will drop twice a month at www.fortressofbailitude.com. You can also find the show on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. The Overlooked Dark Knight celebration of Batman's 80th birthday. Because everyone is doing it, but we're doing it for a whole year. The Overlooked Dark Knight is part of the Fortress of Baileytude podcasting network. All rights reserved. Okay, and after that little commercial interlude, let's read some email. Our first email tonight is from Shag Matthews, he of the Fire and Water podcast. Yes, that Shag Matthews. The Palace of Glittering Delights, Blake Seven. Hey, Andy. Hey, Shag. Just finished watching Blake 7 for the first time. Over the past few months, I've binged my way through all four seasons whilst jogging on the treadmill. Given the infamous series ending, I knew what to expect at the conclusion, but still fell in love with the entire show. So much so that I immediately dove into the big finish full cast audio dramas with the original actors, which have been excellent, by the way. I needed more. I simply didn't want it to end. After finishing the TV series, I listened to your episode 90 about Blake 7 and re-listened to episode 91 about reboots. Excellent thought in both episodes. You are completely right that this series is dying for a reboot. As you mentioned, with the exception of Servalan, you could swap any of the characters' gender, race, orientation, whatever, and it would still work. And the plot of not trusting the government and use of propaganda, very relevant right now. Practically not even science fiction at this point. But you probably don't need me telling you that, right? You commented on the fractious character combinations, which were unusual at the time, 1978 through 81, compared to the cohesive characters in other shows. Interesting, I was watching this from a 2019 perspective and still found the friction between characters to be interesting and provided some standout moments. In the penultimate episode, Avon's plans to jettison Villa from the ship simply to lower the weight to guarantee his own survival was extremely disturbing. And just to jump in on Shag's email, that episode was cut before transmission. There was an extra scene of Villa hiding in um, a cupboard, if they have cupboards on spaceships, terrified that Avon would find him and chuck him out the airlock. That was edited before transmission. Some random thoughts on the show, continues Shag. I think very much my love of Blake 7 comes from being programmed as a Doctor Who fan. The Blake 7 series really does feel like we're following the cast of supporting characters from a random Doctor Who episode. As if we've got Blake and his rebels and any day now the John Pertwee or Tom Baker Doctor is going to swoop in, collapse the Federation government and Servalan within four 22-minute episodes. However, in this case, the Doctor never arrives, so the supporting characters keep on fighting. Number two, whilst everyone seems to love the first and second season, I think the third and fourth season have some really fantastic episodes. At first, I struggled with the departure of Blake and later the loss of the Liberator, but I think they did a decent job replacing both and changing core aspects of the series helped to keep it fresh. Throughout all the seasons, the episodes that shine are ones where they are actively rebelling and fighting against the Federation. The episodes that seem to be less compelling are the sort of Star Trek adventure of the week. 
yeah, I, I don't think Series 3 and 4 get the love they deserve either. They're not as good as Series 2, which I think is the show's high point. But Series 3 and 4 certainly aren't duds by any stretch of the imagination. Number three, I was happier once Travis was removed from the show. While sometimes used well, more often his and Serverland's scheme together felt like Skeletor and Evelyn's plan of the week. Curses foiled again. The Travis stories sometimes strayed away from rebelling and got mired in simple thefts or revenge schemes. Yet it also didn't help to interject once again that the recasting of Travis didn't work. Stephen Grief brought a lovable rogue element to Travis, very much the player on the other side to, to Gareth Thomas's Blake, whereas uh, his replacement, um, Brian Crutcher, it, it just, he just came across as a cockney thug. He didn't really have any of, of Stephen Grief's intelligence or breeding, and it, it just didn't work. It was a it was a, a severe miscast in in the recasting. Number four, the Liberator flight deck, whilst I loved it, was completely impractical as a spaceship flight deck. It was huge, high ceilings, artistically designed, comfy couches, etc. It looked like the lobby of a 1980s Sheraton hotel. See the thing with the Liberator, though, Shag, you've got to remember it wasn't designed by humans. I, I don't even remember at this point. Did we ever find out who did design the Liberator? It was an alien race that we, we just found that ship. And pretty much, it steered itself. You told Zen where you wanted to go, and it went there. So really, why wouldn't the bridge just be this comfy place that you lounge about and hang around in, like a living room? You know, it's not like it's not like the bridge of the Enterprise, which is still a military bridge where people are steering the ship and there's battle stations and first office and all that shit. None of that really applied to the Liberator. So, you know, I mean, on the one hand, it was a very convenient plot device. But on the other, yeah, it was a pretty cool ship that didn't really have to fit any aesthetic designs of humanity. You know, I, I thought that was quite cool about it. Number five, the theme song is infectious. I can't stop humming it. Number six, Paul Darrow as Avon is a joy. The actor chews up every scene and his delivery of sardonic lines is unbeatable. Paul Darrow uh, and Michael Keating, who played Villa, were both recently on an episode of a quiz show called Pointless Celebrities. Uh, Pointless is the quiz show. It's just got celebrities tacked on at the end. Um, and this was a sci-fi episode. I think Peter Davison was on one as well with um, Nissa, I believe. Sarah Sutton, I think, was his companion on the show. Anyway, and um, Paul Darrow is is actually in a wheelchair now. He's had to have both his legs amputated due to an aneurysm. But he was still as vital as ever, and he still has that voice. So on audio, I would imagine and hope that he can continue to play Avon for many years to come. Again, great episodes. Thanks for feeding. Uh, thanks for reading. Sorry, my ramblings above. The show just thrilled me, and I needed to share my thoughts with a fellow Blake Seven fan, the irredeemable Shag of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Well, you're very welcome. I love a bit of Blake Seven, so I'm glad that you enjoyed that. Uh, our final email tonight is from Brian Hughes. What is the Star Trek timeline anyway, Andrew? Thanks for putting out what I think is one of the best shows on the web. I think we can all listen to you read the phone book and like it. It'd be a very boring phone book, though. Anyway, I was spending this morning packing the cars down. We're taking a short trip for, to the lake for an Easter cookout with the family. And I was re-listening to your Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down episode. You spent considerable time in an effort going over the Trek timeline. Great job, by the way. 
Have you, however, looked at Mike and Denise Okuda's Star Trek chronology? The years don't jibe with your chronology, but the events do, including a second five-year mission. The Okuda's chronology is supposed to be canon, but as always with this stuff, there is wiggle room. The book itself is awesome to check out for its pics and renderings of old ships and the like, including the Daedalus-class starship, the early Romulan spacecraft, and the great bird of the galaxy himself, Gene Roddenberry, slipped in there as Robert April. The chronology I have logs no further than the original series adventures after Star Trek VI, and only logs up to the next generation, up to season 5. However, I know a revised edition was published in 1997, adding everything else up to that time, including Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and the motion pictures. I recommend it if you can get it. Thanks again, and don't ever stop. We depend upon you. Take care, have fun, Brian Hughes. Well, thank you, Brian. I think I may have flicked through the Orcuda's chronology at some point. Um, and obviously I, I, I don't have a copy, so I don't know what they worked out. So the second five-year mission you mentioned, so is that the second five-year mission after the motion picture? So am I the only one who's postulated a third five-year mission after Star Trek V? Because I think that's probably the most fascinating of all, that you could have three five-year missions at three distinctly different eras of Kirk's career. First as the brash young captain, then as the guy who's probably more the right age to be a captain. And then third and final in his more seasoned final years. Um, and I think you could probably establish that there is that if you if you use DC's Star Trek comics after Star Trek V as canon and establish that there was a five-year mission there. So I think that's probably the more fascinating era. And I, I think that Peter David's novel The Rift also takes place in that gap between Star Trek V and VI. So probably I'm not the only one that's given that consideration. Anyway, um, there, that isn't the last email. Uh, there's another email, so let's just quickly go through Alistair Jakes, who has emailed in, correcting his typo. Hello, Andrew. Uh, I have caught entirely up with your podcast and have to wait like everybody else, and I am indeed eager to listen to your new Spider-Man episode. To clear up my typo from last email, my favourite Doctors are the 7th Doctor, as played by Sylvester McCoy, and the 11th Doctor, as played by Matt Smith. Given certain events that happened during the Moffat run, I prefer to refer to the New Who Doctors by the people who played them, and presumably my subconscious booked like a Bronco. Still, it could have been worse. I have a horrible habit of mixing up the names Hannibal and Hamilton. John Hamilton Smith probably doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? I do not blame you for not liking the Seventh Doctor. What I like about him is the 90s edginess that the books introduced and the TV episodes only hint at. That makes the famous character summary of Never Cruel and Cowardly seem laughably naive. My Doctor, well, Doctor, since Matt Smith's incarnation shares this trait, turn up with a plan to topple an empire or destroy an eldritch being, and if that means manipulating friends and sacrificing good people, they will do it, with only a little instinct. For fans of the Bohemian Traveller who helps out where they can and is truly never cruel or cowardly, this is as much a betrayal of the franchise as Deep Space Nine, having a Ferengi on the main cast, despite Jean-Luc's assertion that the Federation had abolished money. I will give two true freaks a listen and was sorry to hear of Sean's passing and understand and respect your reasons. I realise that The Palace is a podcast that struggles to cover a show with a tight, ongoing narrative of Farscape, what Farscape has in its favour, though, is that it remained high concept through its run, with episodes focusing on exploring a particular idea. There's the Body Swap episode, the Looney Tunes episode, the horror movie episode with a dead ship of cannibals. Even in season four, there are episodes like Don Quixote, sorry, John Quixote, the stuck-in-the-video-game 
episode, and lava's a many-splendid thing where you can speak around the ongoing plot. To that, I think I have thought about doing the Looney Tunes episode. I think that's what I leaned on with Farscape. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Anyway, I'll leave you now as I have Pokemon to play. I look forward to your Remembrance of the Daleks episode, Alistair. Well, you're very welcome, Alistair. And thank you for emailing back concerning your 7th and 11th Doctor. Confusion. That about wraps it up for this time. Next time, if we follow what I've been writing, it'll be that Remembrance of the Daleks episode. Because I've watched the show and I've read the books. And that's where we're up to. So uh, that may very well be next. As ever, the show is a Two True Freaks presentation. And you can email me at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com about this or any other topic that takes your fancy. See you next time. And remember, it's all going to be okay. Okay.